0: Tonight we're going to go together to the book of Ephesians and go to another church that Paul is teaching through his letters, though he is not present to be with them. And I trust that our time in the book of Ephesians will be beneficial to you as it has been to me already this week. It's been a good reminder and a refresher course in what God has designed for the church. I don't know how much... I've related to you about my upbringing, but I was raised from birth until five in the home of a varsity basketball coach. And uh, once a varsity basketball coach, or a coach at all, always a coach, and I was raised in a home of a very good coach, just in case he gets this CD. Uh, He is a good coach, one of the best, if not the best, ever, ever in the history of the game. No, he's probably not that good. But in his three or four years as a varsity coach, I think they lost three games or something like that, and his record was outstanding. I would go to practice. I started going to practice at age three, and you can imagine what that looked like. The basketball was half my body weight, and, uh, and I would run up and down the court working on different skills. My dad coached me through junior high as an assistant, and he coached me through every moment of playing by being in the upper left corner of the stands. No matter what game it was, I knew where he was sitting, and I could look up there and get a simple facial expression or a uh, hand motion that would inform me of what may be wrong at the moment in the game with my particular business in that basketball game. But there was a truth that was given to me in my basketball knowledge very early on in my basketball upbringing, and that was the importance and the vital nature of role players, and a role player, and this is in any sport that's a team game, a role player, especially in the game of basketball, is a player who understands his limited skill set, He may not be the most talented or the most well-rounded basketball player on the team, but understanding his limited skill set, he utilizes his abilities to accomplish the coach's design for him in any particular game. And any long-term success in the game of basketball from a team standpoint, any long-term winning, is dependent on good role players. A team that has five phenomenal athletes, five phenomenal basketball players, who all have been the main guy on their team, if none of them submit themselves to being role players, that team will struggle. And you've all watched a game or maybe heard of a game, or never watched a game or never heard of a game, I don't care, but you've all, I think, interacted at some level with a team in a sport that was obviously more talented and yet was defeated by a less talented team. Now, that can happen for many reasons, but one primary reason often is that the role players on the less talented team utilize their job in a way that they maximized their team's potential. And so, growing up, I was always aware of the necessity of role players and to appreciate a role player. And I have been both the recipient of a role playing around me and I have been a role player at different stages and in different settings. The role player is not creative on the floor. He doesn't come up with something out there that's creative in and of himself. He's not the primary scorer for the most part. He is simply there to do a menial task and he's to do it well and he's to do it consistently so that that primary player on the team or primary players on the team can be creative and can use their skill set, which is much broader, for the betterment of the team. I like being the guy who gets to be creative and that's not always the way it worked out. And the Lord of the church, if I can draw a direct parallel to basketball and I I would think that over the years together, you're going to hear that more than one time. If I can draw a direct parallel to basketball, the Lord of the church has called and delegated leaders of His church to a specific role. Church leadership is not creative in the sense of coming up with what they do. Church leaders are not to be innovative in their tasks. The coach, if you will, the master, the Lord of the church, has laid out for them their task list. It's pretty clear what they're to be about. And the measure of their success will be the faithfulness with which they apply themselves to what the master has already laid out for them. The measure of their success is not the creative ability. It's not their innovation. It's not their... Visual success of numbers or growth, it is faithfulness to their role. And so tonight we're going to look at the divine design for church leadership. And we're going to do that from, of course, from Ephesians chapter 4. Pastors, elders, we'll call them, are role players. They are game plan achievers who sacrifice their goals. They sacrifice their dreams. They sacrifice their ideas of perfect wisdom. What they think would be wise, they sacrifice that to accomplish the tasks laid before them by the Master. And I stand before you each and every time that we're together. And I stand before you in spirit every day of the week striving to accomplish the list set out before me as a pastor. And tonight with uh, great fear in my heart, I'm going to put on I'm going to put myself on the hot seat. We're going to look at my task list and the task list of every church leader. Every elder, every pastor, teacher. So, we are role players. All church leaders are role players, and there is a divine design To the church. And I think you know that. I think at least we would give credence to that fact, and yet we probably don't think deeply about that on a consistent basis. What is it that we're actually here for, and what is the design and the structure which God has set up for us as priorities in the church? There's four facets of God's design, and we'll look at them. And this is what I love about Paul's writing in the epistles. They are just going to go in the order in which we find them right through these verses linked together by his logic and his language. And I trust that uh, they'll be crystal clear to you what God has laid out for church leaders. Okay? Let's read our passage together. We're going to study tonight your, your bulletin, your note sheet might say 11 to 16. That was ambitious on my part early in the week. We're going to study verses 11 to 14 tonight and we'll come back next week and wrap up what we are unable to finish this evening. So we'll begin reading in verse 11 about Christ and His gifts of leaders to the church. And He gave, that being Christ, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And we'll read on to verse 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, that being the head of the church, for whom Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And I trust that the clarity of this passage, you may have read this a thousand times, and I trust and I hope that you'll read it a thousand more And yet, this evening, I think there are profound and foundational thoughts here given by the Apostle Paul for Grace Church of the Valley. These are important. These are key. These are where we need to start as we think of what it is that God has designed for His church. Facet number one of God's design or the divine design for the church is God's gift of church leadership. And He gives us four or five, depending on how you read this, in verse 11, it gives us four categories of church leadership. Two of them are foundational to the church as they're the direct communicators of the revealed Word of God, both verbally and in written form. These were offices given for the transmission of the truth. Two of them are ongoing in the key aspect of of leading God's church. And so here they are. Christ has given these offices to the church for its leadership apostles, prophets, evangelists, thus shepherds and teachers. Let's start with the first one. Logically, we're just to set the context on why he is talking of giving. Now, if we go back into verse 7, you'll find where Paul is mentioning that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so we're speaking here in the realm of the church and Christ's gifting of all of the church. That is the people who make up this organism we call the church. And we can find passage after passage about spiritual gifts. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 will come to your mind immediately, I'm sure. These are all important sections speaking of spiritual gifts. And yet, in verse 11, the particular gifts that Paul is mentioning in Ephesians 4 are people. They're gifts of people to the church. No less Spirit-empowered. No less Spirit-initiated. These are not people who have some skill in and of themselves, but they are gifted and given to the church. The first one listed tonight is the Apostles there were 13 apostles. And the apostles were those who were the men who had seen Christ and who were laying the foundation of the church, right? Both of these first two categories are not only linked here, but they're linked back in chapter 2. If you turn back just one page, probably in your Bible, to chapter 2 and verse 19, Paul says, "...so then you are no longer strangers and aliens." but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And what is or how is this household of God being established? Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. And so these apostles, in similar fashion to the prophets, were those who were transmitting the very Word of God given to them in private revelation for the... Edification of the body. No apostle was replaced at death. There was no succession of apostolic leadership. And we obviously know that there is that belief held in our world today. That ultimately Peter, as the apostle, passed on his headship as an apostle, and the apostolic succession continued in what we call today the Pope. That would be foreign to what the New Testament teaches. The apostles were thirteen men. Judas, a false apostle, was replaced. And Paul was added to the twelve. As apostle, he calls himself out of his time. As he saw the Lord on the Damascus road and was set apart. Galatians tells us he was set apart while in his mother's womb, before his birth, to be an apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so these 13 men stand as the foundation. They were the teachers. We spoke of them in Acts, where the early church gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. These were the men who were communicating God's Word to God's people in the early church. Unlike the generic use of the word apostle, which is in your New Testament, you'll find apostles of the church. They're sent ones. You know that, I think. that apostles, The word apostle means sent. it can be used as a verb. And it means to send out. And so there are people designated in the New Testament as the apostle from the church of so-and-so. A generic term being the one who was sent from that church to do some task or to bring some letter. Unlike that generic use, this was a special and primary and foundational office of the church. And so... As much as it may come as a shock to some of you, depending on your background and what churches you may have been in, I would, I would say to you this evening, you've never met an apostle, not in the sense that we speak of here. There are those today who would call themselves little A apostles, and I understand the concept as those who are sent out as messengers of God, but there are no capital A apostles remaining today. Second category is prophets. So we have apostles and prophets designated by the definite article. Don't underestimate the importance of the little word the before these because it will come in very handy at the end of the verse. The apostles, the prophets, setting apart these as significant and particular offices. These are the gifts of church leadership. The prophets are also a foundational office. They were ones, unlike those who had the prophetic gift, the prophets were set apart as a category of people who were directly responsible to communicate God's Word to God's people on a consistent basis. And this prophecy is no different in the New Testament. This is important. It's no different in the New Testament than it was in the Old Testament. You may read, depending on how widely you read, you may read arguments for New Testament prophecy being something less then divinely communicated truth. And now you remember in the Old Testament that a prophet whose prophecy, if it was foretelling that something was going to happen, if it didn't happen, or if he spoke error, which was different than the revealed word of God, that prophet was handled rather harshly, right? What was his end? It ended with the taste of dirt and stones. He died. He was stoned because of his false prophecy. And I would tell you this evening that the prophets as a category were communicating at the same level of importance. In fact, in the New Testament, in 1 Thessalonians 5, we've got a common passage that we're very used to because it's been taken out of context often. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and look at verse 20. Speaking of prophets and their prophecies in the New Testament, look at what Paul commends for the Thessalonian church. He says in verse 20, Do not despise prophecies. Don't hate the prophetic work. Verse 21, But test everything. That is, test every prophecy that's given. And what is your response to be to the prophetic word being given here in the early church? You're to hold fast to that what to what is good, that being what is in accordance with what God has given in His Word. You're to hold fast. You're to put your arms around it and squeeze it tightly to what is good. And then secondly, here is your second response, and you are to abstain from every form of evil. In other words, as you listen to prophetic utterances, the prophecies that were given in the church, they were to be testing those prophecies against God's Word. And they were to be holding to what is good. And no matter what form or what what style the error came in, they were to abstain from it. They were to put it away from them at all costs. And so this work of prophecy was serious business. And there is some correlation between the early prophet and the pastor, teacher, and preacher of God's Word. The difference would be the mode of communication. That being the mode of communication from God to his spokesman. The prophet was receiving direct revelation as he spoke. The Spirit of God was giving him words that were divinely inspired that he would speak truth for God. And the preacher today stands before God's people with the revealed word of God, not wondering what the word will be when it comes but having it in its completed form right before him. And his responsibility is similar to the prophet, though this office was foundational to the church. So, this work of prophecy was extremely serious to the church. After the completion of the canon, after the Word of God was completed, the final words were written and penned for the church for the rest of time and eternity, these offices were no longer necessary for the church. They no longer needed the transmission of direct revelation. God had given His Word and He commanded that nothing be added or taken from it. And so they're linked together both in this passage and in previous passages. In 2.20, as well as in First Corinthians, they're linked as the early two offices of the church in the order that they're written. And now we move to the two that are particularly important to us today. Though we stand on the foundation of those early apostles and prophets, we find the third category is evangelists. And the evangelists are those who give themselves entirely to the proclamation and the furtherance of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I wrote in my notes, a.k.a. missionary church planter. This is... This is the one who goes where the Word of God has not gone, who brings the Gospel where it has not been, and who proclaims with particular gifting and with special gifting from God the good news of God's Gospel. This does not mean that you can sit here this evening and I can stand here this evening and say, well, I'm not an evangelist. So I guess I'll leave that work to those guys who are gifted in particular ways for that office in the church. Not at all. We are commanded to be about evangelism one and all. But these people are given to the church as particularly gifted and particularly focused in their proclamation of the Gospel. Look over to Acts 21. Let's look there together. Acts 21 and we'll see an example of this. There's only a few mentions in the New Testament, only a couple times that the evangelist is mentioned. I thought it'd be good for us to look at them this evening. Acts 21, you remember Philip, he was one of one of the early church leaders, one who gave himself for the church. Verse 7 says, When he had finished the voyage from Tyre, when we had finished the village from Tyre, this being Paul, we arrived at Ptolemaeus and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist who was one of the seven and stayed with him. And that one of the seven is referring back to Acts chapter 6 where they were set apart for helping the apostles in the carrying of the early church body. And so Philip was designated as an evangelist. The other reference to the evangelist is found in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul here is speaking to his young protégé Timothy and commending him to a life set apart for the gospel's sake and for the church's sake. And he tells dear Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he tells Timothy As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And so Paul commends him to be about the work of an evangelist. And so that is the third category given as a gift, a grace gift from Christ, the head, to His church for its leadership. And finally then, we come to the final category And these are linked together, and that being the shepherds, the pastors, and teachers. And you have probably read or heard the term pastor teacher. That comes directly from this verse. From an understanding that these two are linked together, they share a definitive, a definite article. That the goes for both of them. And so in the Greek language, we could connect them together and say pastor teacher. I don't know that Paul necessarily was calling this one title. Certainly, these two are inextricably linked together. Every pastor is a teacher. That's inherent in what shepherding involves. It involves, first and foremost, the feeding of the sheep, right? No shepherd is worth his salt if he doesn't feed the sheep. Well, I love them, and I just care for them, and I pet them a lot, and they're wasting away to nothing. Look at these skinny sheep. You are fired if you are not a shepherd who feeds. And so certainly every shepherd, every pastor, poimen is the Greek word that's used here, and it's the word for pastor. Every pastor is a teacher. But I think the case can be made that every teacher is not a pastor. And God certainly gifts in the church teachers who are not fulfilling the office of pastor, but they are uniquely serving the body in a very special fashion for the sake of the, of the ministry which we're about to explore in the following verses, pastors and teachers and pastor-teachers, that being a specific role, serve the church. It's the final office in the list. It's also called an elder. The shepherd is known as an elder or as an overseer. If you have a King James Bible, you may have elder and bishop. I get called Bishop Bailey by some friends as a joke because we don't use that term much anymore. But the word shepherd, elder, and overseer, or pastor, bishop, and elder, are in ex- they're interchangeable in the New Testament. And so we see in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, the laying out for the overseer is 1 Timothy 3. right? If anyone desires the work of an overseer, of a bishop in your King James Version, you have that. That would be the same as Titus 1 that says assign elders in every city and here are the qualifications for those elders. And that would be no different than the office that's set apart here as shepherd or pastor. And this is the outlining of the leadership that God has given to the church today and that God gave to the church as the foundation at its beginning. Okay? Okay? So, facet number one of the divine design is God's gifting of church leadership. Now we move on in verse 12 to the second facet, and that is God's design for church leadership. And so God actually has a purpose. He has an intention for those leaders that He has set aside as the offices in His church. And it's not unclear what their role is to be what their purpose is, what their design is in God's master plan for the church. Jesus Christ has set them apart as His delegated leaders. And now we see what the evangelists and the pastors and teachers are to be about in the church. Read verse 12 with me. It says, to equip the saints. To equip the saints. That's the very reason... That the pastor-teacher, that's the very reason that the evangelist has been given to the church. Now the idea of equipping, if we can make that a little bit more pertinent to our thinking, is to make adequate, or to make sufficient, to make competent. In other words, the church without an equipper, without one who is making adequate the body, would be left without a leader. It would be left far short of what God intended. And so these shepherds, these evangelists, the teachers of the church, are to be about equipping or making adequate the body of Christ in the local assemblies. That's their design. That's their role. And that role is further defined for us in the rest of this verse and into the next couple verses. Pastors are to be about making the church competent for its task. One of my favorite commentators that I love to read at the end of my preparation is Kent Hughes. And maybe you've heard Kent Hughes preach before or read some books by Kent Hughes. Kent and Barbara have written phenomenal books for the family. The Disciplines of a Godly Man, The Disciplines of a Godly Woman, and The Disciplines of a Godly Family, I commend those to you. And Kent Hughes has spent years preaching God's Word. And he says this, Shocking statement. Lame sermonettes produce Christianettes. Those who stand in the stead of the foundational apostles and prophets as evangelists and pastor teachers must open wide the foundational teaching of the Old and New Testaments if there is to be true church growth. And those who receive the teaching must listen well, take notes, and put it to work. That's the design for church leadership. The task is for equipping the saints. say, well, what exactly are they equipping the saints with a mind or a focus to? Well, look forward in verse 12. Here's the purpose behind that equipping. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. So in other words, get the latter effect in your mind. The service, the ministry of the pastor, teacher and evangelist is to equip the body to work out the ministry to which they're called. Not only that, but both of those combined, both the ministry of the equipping and the ministry work that is done by the body will result ultimately at the end of verse 12 for the building up the body of Christ. And so the fruit of my service to you as a pastor, David's service to you as a pastor in equipping you, in teaching you, in feeding you, the fruit of that and the fruit of your work in ministry in service to the church and to one another, those combined result in the building up of the body of Christ. And that building up is not just building in size. In fact, that's probably not what Paul had in mind. He could have meant size, but more likely the idea here is development, maturity. And that's what will be the theme in the verses following. And so your work of ministry as you are equipped, and my service of equipping and David's service of equipping as pastors, elders over, and equippers, shepherds, feeders, those things combined will build. That is how Christ has established His church to be built. A breach in faithfulness at any level will result in a stunted growth. Right? So, the moment that this pulpit and the other pulpits of our church and other teaching times of our church stop equipping you, stop instructing and feeding, there will be a stunt in the growth of the body of Christ here. Any breach in the work of the ministry of those who are equipped. And so those who are being equipped who sit and do not respond to the equipping will stunt the growth of the building in the body of Christ. This is the design. This is what God has set up. This is what the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, has assigned and designed for His people. This is what we are called to. Listen to this quote by another commentator. It says, "...the ministry of the officials..." of the church, the offices of the church, the ministry of the officials does not find its fulfillment in their own existence, but in the activity of preparing others to minister. And so in other words, my life is not wrapped up in this time right here standing and talking. My life is wrapped up in the fruit of our ministry to one another through the week. This service of pastoring, this service of shepherding, is with an eye to the unified corporate ministry of the church. So this is not a performance before you. This is not a good speech or a bad speech, you may think. This is not a contest to see who's the best public speaker. This is an equipping time so that we can go and work the ministry out in our lives to one another. And we can go and proclaim the glory of the Gospel as a unified corporate body to our community around us. This is the purpose. This is the design. There's a great quote that I have not tracked down that my pastor in Texas, Tom Pennington, used often. He said, I am not standing before you as an actor. You are the actors before God. I'm just feeding you your lines. The pastor is simply feeding you your lines. He's holding up the cue cards to say, this is the way we need to live This is what Christ has done. This is who God is. You have been equipped. Go and serve effectively. And His faithfulness at His service will be judged by the one who has assigned it, the head of the church, Christ Himself. So, both the equipping work done by pastors and teachers and the work of service by the saints as a result will accomplish the building up the maturing of the body of Christ. Now, let's look at that as the third facet of the divine design. God's goals for church leaders. So what are the goals that are set before the leaders? What's the end that we're looking towards? Verse 13, until, until we all, that being leaders and those who are a part of the body as a whole, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, That could be translated to full-grown manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So here are the goals laid out clearly by Christ. He not only designates the offices for the church, he outlines their job description, their role as role players in his kingdom, purposes, and now Paul uncovers that Christ has also given us the goals, the end for the ministry of the church. Here are the goals that leadership in the church is looking towards. Unity of the faith is the first until we all attain to the unity of the faith. My prayer and the goal to which I serve is that we would be unified as a body in our understanding of doctrine. When we speak of unity in faith, we are speaking of unified faith in the in the confession that we studied in Matthew 16 unified faith in the realities of the gospel and in the person and work of our lord jesus christ not only is it unity in faith but paul goes on and he adds more to this sentence he says unity of faith and unity of the knowledge of the son of god so not only is it unified faith unified confidence in the unseen The realities of our Lord and of heaven, and the truth that's revealed to us, but it's unified knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so that's part of why we come together. This is the end for which we come together. We come to be equipped. We come to do the work of the ministry after equipping. We realize that that results in the building up of the body And we come for this end, that we would attain ultimately unity in our faith and unity in our knowledge of the Son of God. And Paul describes that for us as maturity. Maturity is the end. If you want to know what a mature church looks like, so that you can know when you've been in one, a mature church is one that is unified in its faith and it's unified in its knowledge of the Son of God because those leaders that have been assigned by the head of the church are accomplishing their task and the body is receiving the Word and living it out in the work of the ministry. So this is mature manhood that Paul mentions, and he describes it for us to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Maturity in the church is measured by one standard. As a kid, I, I grew up with a dad who was 6'6", 250-plus, athlete. And the measure of my maturity was always my dad. You were probably the same. Girls, the measure of your maturity was your mom. It was the standard that you were looking to. And unfortunately, I never got there. So it was a discouraging uh, pursuit of maturity. We marked off the line on the wall. And the height came and came and came and it came three quarters of an inch short of dad's height. And the physical frame is obviously drastically different than dad's. Okay, and we knew that at an early age when we couldn't get over 125, <laughs> when I was like a sophomore in high school, we knew we had major problems. I was burning more calories than I could ever, ever get in my system. And so I was looking to my dad and saying, I'll be matured, I'll be completed, I'll have grown up when i look like dad does it's not that way in the church there's no other human standard there's no one you can compare yourself to there's no other church we can compare ourselves to to say that's when we're mature when we're like that church we're mature no maturity in the church is measured in the in the very person the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ he is our standard it's his life it's his ministry it's His selfless service to His Father. It's His sacrifice for His people. It's his, it's, it's his message that is our standard. When will we know if we have come to maturity? Ultimately, we'll never be fully mature, but we will come to maturity when we are living up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of our head. So the more we represent the One who stands as Head of the Church, the more clearly you can see the head through the body, the more mature the church has become. You want to pray for maturity in the church? You want to pray that God will develop maturity in this church? We need to pray that this church will reflect its head to the community and to the world. That will happen because the offices that He has assigned will be about what they have been designated to do And that will happen because those who receive the Word from the teaching of the pastor, teachers, and the evangelists will receive it and fulfill the work of the ministry. The body will be built up. It will unify in faith. It will unify in its knowledge of the Son of God. And ultimately, it will come to maturity. It will reflect its head, that being Christ. Finally then, in our verses this evening, we see the fourth facet of the divine design for the church. And the fourth facet is God's results through church leaders. What is the ultimate result through the ministry of His assigned and delegated leaders? This is the intended results for the ministry of church leadership that Christ has ordained and set apart. Verse 14, so that, always an important word in your Bible reading, so that, here's the end, so that we may no longer be children. So continuing on with the idea of maturity, Paul says that the ultimate result that comes through effective and faithful ministry by church leaders as designated by God, and what comes through the faithful reception of the Word and application of the Word by the body who receives it, is that the church will grow to be made up of spiritual adults. Spiritual adulthood is the ultimate result that we should desire and we should pray for and that we should strive for as we're dependent upon grace. No more like children. No longer like little kids in the faith. How are they designated? What are little children in the faith? Immature in the faith. What do they look like? Well, they're tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So spiritual adulthood, if we look at the flip side of this verse, spiritual adulthood results in a steadiness in its life and its doctrine. There is a resoluteness to the spiritual adult. He will not waver. He will not move. He is settled in his conviction of the truth of what has been revealed. He will not be moved. Paul uses word pictures here and I love word pictures. I love illustrations, I think words are valuable, and a picture is worth a thousand words. And so he uses a picture for these readers and for us, and I think it's helpful. Spiritually immature, the spiritual children, are used or are tossed about by two storms, both water and land storms. First one is by waves of the sea, is the picture he uses. The second one is by the wind on a plane. Not an airplane. A plane, like Kansas. Okay, plane. The wind that would be in a desert plane that would whip through and would knock a child for a loop, never being able to keep a straight path because of the violence of the wind. No child could hold steady in the, in the massive waves that the Pacific could throw at them. <clears throat> this is the picture that's used of the one who is spiritually a child. And this is the picture of a church that is made up of spiritual children. It's tossed to and fro by waves and it's carried about by every wind. And that wind, Paul designates, the wind and the waves represent doctrine, that is teaching. So every form of teaching, every new idea that comes down the road, those that are made up of a church that is made up of spiritual children will be tossed to and fro off the beaten path off the beaten path, to the left, to the right, moved all over the place by every wind, every variety, every brand of teaching that comes down the path. Not only that, he goes on and he says it's not only the doctrine, but by human cunning. So here are the dangers that are represented to the spiritual children or churches that are made up of spiritual children. False teaching, human wisdom and strategy, And then clever but deceptive schemes. It doesn't take long for us to apply this to our own existence as a church, right? There is plenty of teaching that is outside of the apostolic Word that has been given to us. There are plenty of human wisdom, plenty of human strategies, and there is a lot of human wisdom being thrown about the church for its leaders to be sucked into and to be tossed and moved and directed that is outside of what God has revealed to us as His intention. And finally, and most detrimental, there are clever but deceiving, deceptive schemes of those who would bring the church to ruin. So the ultimate result, that faithful leadership in the church and faithful body life in the church, the ultimate result is spiritual adulthood. Now remember, the context of the teaching, the cunning, the human cunning, the craftiness and deceitful schemes, that context is within, not from without. So Paul is warning here that spiritual children will be tossed to and fro as the church is left unguarded, weak, immature, and without biblical leadership and without... A biblical pursuit of body life. So, these are the facets of the divine design. First of all, God gifts the church. Christ gives the church its leadership. Secondly, Christ delegates the leaders to a specific design. They have a purpose. Not only do they have a purpose, but those same leaders are given goals. They have an end in sight. And there is a promised result that will come through their faithfulness. One of the most powerful books that I've ever read in my young ministry life, training and serving, has been a book by Kent Hughes. It's called... uh, It's called... It's not alleviating ministry from the success syndrome. It is something else. Ministry from the success syndrome... And the book is centered on the idea that a success syndrome will plague us as young men particularly and as shepherds in general. And so our world has built up a mentality of success that comes really from a corporate mindset. And the book is focusing on the fact that to alleviate, to remove the pressure of worldly success, The shepherd is to focus on what God calls him to, and that is faithfulness at the task. And so as I thought about our conclusion tonight, an application from this paragraph, there are several things that come to mind, but not far from the top, is pray for your young leadership to be consistently about the Master's plan for the church. I can't emphasize it enough. David and I pray for this in our own lives, and we covet your prayers to this end as well. You have young leaders. Young leaders are receptive or open to temptations that are unique to young leaders. You can read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus and see some of those dangers. Pray. Pray. And hold us to a standard of faithfulness to what God has called us to that we might be a part of equipping you and ultimately a part of building up the body of Christ. Secondly, I wrote down in my notes, understand that your equipping is for the end of your service. You have not hired two professionals to do the work of the ministry. In fact, the work of the ministry rests on you. We serve as equippers for that work. We serve you to the end of you serving one another and serving Christ's purposes in the church. Understand that the equipping and subsequent service will result in the maturity of our church. And catch this, don't miss this. Understand that the maturity of the church will ensure the purity of the church, which will lead to the effectiveness of the church in the world. So you say, how does the church become so messed up? How does churches become so impure? So so much of a mess of belief and unbelief and tossed here and there. Understand that maturity comes from effective equipping and receptive hearing of the word and the work of the ministry. So if we want to see purity in our church, we need to understand that the maturity of our church is directly tied to our purity. And our effectiveness in our community, and our effectiveness in the world outside of our community, and those we come in contact with, will be directly tied to the purity of what we do as we gather together as the church. Now that's a tall order. That's an immense responsibility. And it's at these times when we think, wow, the maturity of the church will protect its purity. And the purity of the church will give it effectiveness in the community and outside of it that we think, man, I've got a lot to do. I've got a lot, to, I've got a lot of maturing to do. And these are the times when we fall back and we remember and we glory in who our head is. He's the living Son of God. He's the One who has gone to Calvary and secured our justification. He's the One who gives us His Spirit. Who gives us grace that we might serve Him. He's the One who has made us victorious over sin that we might live not as slaves to sin, but as slaves to His cause and His name. This is the One we serve. This is our head. And the daunting task of maturing, protecting purity, serving Christ in the work of the ministry, equipping the saints as leaders, all of that must fall back on the head. From the head flows every other life that goes through the body. That's what 1 Corinthians teaches us. So pray for your leaders. Understand your responsibility. And then lean. Lean on our head. Jesus Christ Himself. If we serve Christ in our own adequacy, With our own sufficiency, we will fall far short of what he can, what he desires, and what he ultimately has set up for us as the divine design for the church. I hope that's helpful to you. Next week we're going to come and look at more of our response to the equipping work that is accomplished in the church. As we speak truth in love to one another, ministering to one another and the relationships we find in the local church. Father, thank You for this small paragraph, this sentence that we've studied from the Apostle Paul this evening. Thank You for the outline that has given us of Your design and Your gifts to us through Christ. Thank You for the work that He has done so that there is a church. We recognize that we're here tonight solely because of, of Him, solely for Him, We're here solely through Him. Everything we do is wrapped up in His person and in His work. And oh, how we desire to be faithful to what You have set up for our church. May Grace Church of the Valley be a church faithful with one standard of maturity in mind, that being the full stature, the measure of the full stature of the person of Jesus Christ. May we reflect our head May others see clearly the one we serve through the work of the ministry and the equipping of the saints that goes on on a consistent week-in and week-out basis at Grace Church of the Valley. And we'll praise Your name because Your grace will have enabled and accomplished it all. And we ask it for our Savior's name's sake and for His glory. Amen.